Riley's already been an example to me and a challenge to me, and I've given him, he's kind of one of those guys, it's easy to give him a hard time, and uh, I've been doing that for the last two years, but I was just sharing with the first service that it struck me right before I was about to come here and preach in the first service, that Riley was actually a seed of inspiration for this series. We were sitting and having lunch over at Noodles here in Briar Creek, and uh, we were just talking. He's telling me some of his story and how God had worked in his life and transitioned. You know, most of us have known him as this, like, pure young man that just wants to do stuff for the Lord. And he talked about how God had transformed his heart from really wanting to make money and succeed in business to making a difference for eternity. And he was telling me about how God had spoken to him through different stuff. And he asked me a question. He said, what do you think is the biggest challenge or problem in the American church? And without thinking about it a lot, I just said, well, I think probably consumerism. We've got a natural consumerism mentality, and we're very materialistic, and then it kind of triggered in my mind. I didn't tell him at that moment, that'll be our Christmas series. We'll do a Christmas series called Consumed, and we'll talk about how the different things consume us. But I thought at that point, we'd stick the level of materialism. And as I've prayed through this and studied the scriptures and thought about our culture, I realized there are multiple things in our culture that consume us. And Riley shares with us this morning about his fear of being overwhelmed with the, you know, the project for one, 300,000 people to reach, and he's one guy. <laughs> There's five other Christians there they know about, so Riley himself dramatically increases the Christian population and goes into this situation. But then also just, the, and some of you know what it's like to live in isolation, and maybe you've got a bunch of people around you, but you live in isolation, and that's when it's fertile ground for you to start believing things that aren't true, believing things that are contrary to the gospel, believing things that are different than what the scripture says. And so naturally, you have some fear with that. And then I think about our culture and the culture of fear that we live within. Last week, we talked about all the activities we'd be involved in over Christmas time period. And we'd go shopping, and we'd have lists, and there'd be parties to go to. Went to a Christmas party last night with some of my neighbors, and just different things that we'll do. And they bring different emotions. It's not just a bunch of busyness. Some of you are going to do things, they'll bring emotions of reminiscent, like just traditions, maybe going to see Christmas lights, or they'll remind you of things that maybe a grandfather or a father used to tell stories, and, and you watch Christmas specials, and you feel sentimental, and, and there'll be joy, and there'll be celebration, and there'll be worship, and there'll be all these emotions, but one I can almost promise you you will experience is fear, because fear is a normal part of our culture. In fact, there are, if you go online and you look up phobias, there are all kinds of phobias out there. Spiders, darkness, people afraid of peanut butter, people afraid of large crowds. It on the first servers. It always ranks high uh, that public speaking is one of the greatest fears that people have, which isn't funny to you, but it's real ironic to me as I stand here with lights on me and talking to you. Uh, but the uh, different list of things that you could be scared of are almost limitless. I was thinking about different things that, that I'm actually afraid of as I was preparing for this because I first tried to apply the message to myself and I was reminded this week I was on a plane and some people are afraid of flying. I'm not afraid of flying, it's landing. Anyway, uh, I'm not af- afraid of flying really but I was sitting there and a uh, fear struck me as the stewardess came up and she starts to give the demonstration that no one really watches. Have you ever seen that? She shows you how to put a seatbelt on. <laughs> and I was sitting next to our connections pastor, John Cullen, and we started to joke about, I said, one day I'm actually going to sit next to some guy that's going to watch her do this and he's going to go, oh! Oh, that's how that thing works. Stupid people scare me, okay? And there are stupid people all over our society. God loves stupid people. Sometimes I am a stupid person. But they scare me a little bit because you never know what they're going to do. You never know what they're going to do in traffic. You never know what they might do on an airplane, and we've got a great fear of that. My friend Jason was recently on an airplane. If you go to his Facebook page, you can see, and there was a bomb threat on the airplane that he was on. Stupid person that decided to yell these things out, and who knows what's happening to that guy now. There's a lot of stuff out there, isn't there? We have a culture that's afraid of terrorist attacks. Ever since that plane went into the building, and we saw that, it totally changed our economy. Ever since you see different tsunamis take place, and floods take place, and tornadoes hit, there's a fear that maybe a tragedy could come at any moment. And if you watch the news, they foster a culture of fear. 
I'm constantly telling you about the things that might happen and what catastrophe it may bring. Like just with the economy. We're in a recession already where they've got these things where the super committee needs to meet and there's like a countdown clock in the bottom corner on the news. And if they don't meet by this deadline, it's like financial crisis for the entire country. And they miss that deadline. And then two weeks later, there's another deadline. <laughs> you know, there's this fear that they're fostering that something bad might happen. Or then you watch all the bad stories like this week, the Virginia Tech shooting that took place. And students, they're afraid to come out of their dorms. And then parents, they're afraid that maybe something happened to one of their students. And then we all become afraid of what some stupid person might do in our culture. And there's this fear that's continually there. But fear is also a motivator. And you see advertisers use it. And they try to use it in a positive way. There's a fear that you might miss out. If you don't order now, we've only got 10 items left. You've got to call in right now and you know, do this thing. Or the, the sale ends this Sunday. And, and if you don't go now, you'll miss out. So there's a fear of missing out. Fear is just such a normal part. It's like a, a fabric in our culture. And so I ask you, what are you afraid of? What are your greatest fears? Maybe loss of money. Uh, maybe a terrorist attack. Maybe some tragedy. Maybe something that will come from the doctor. Maybe there are core fears that are even deeper than that. And if you think about our core fears, they can drive, they can control everything that we do. I've talked to multiple people, specifically some men in our congregation, that have told me before they have a fear of failure. And they're very successful men by every worldly standard. It drives, it controls everything that they do. You think about fear of loss. Some of you have a fear of loss. You might lose a loved one, you might lose your job, might lose your reputation, might lose some money, might, might lose a child, might, multiple things that might happen. There's a fear of that. that. That fear can control you. That fear can ultimately consume you. There's a fear of the unknown. There's a fear of loss of control. There's all kinds of fears that can be core fears for us. Last week we talked about how something will consume our lives. Something consumed your last week. Something consumed your thoughts this past week. Something consumed your money this past week. Something consumes your time. Something consumes your affections. Ultimately, when we get to the end of our lives, we'll look back and something will have consumed our time, our lives, our money, everything about us, our lives as a whole. So what is it? And this fear is a consuming concept. And today we're going to talk about how we can be consumed with fear. If you have your Bible, it's going to be in Matthew chapter 1, the very first gospel. After some hard-named prophets, you get to the gospel of Matthew, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The gospel of Matthew, I love one of the aspects of the gospel of Matthew, and it's that Matthew is the author, and you can probably figure that out from the title of the book. But Matthew ends up writing stuff that he actually experienced. He's not writing a historical document here. Well, Matthew's actually writing about it oftentimes, not every time, but oftentimes this firsthand experience he had with Jesus Christ. If you don't know Matthew's story, Matthew's story is the gospel. Because Matthew was a tax collector. And to put it in perspective of Jesus' day, a tax collector then is about as popular as um, a tax collector <laughs> would be today. You know, no one loves a tax collector, right? But this guy's even worse. Because this guy was actually about the equivalent of what would be a modern-day fundraiser for terrorism. So a fundraiser for Al-Qaeda would essentially be what Matthew was like. Because he actually collected money to raise money for the Roman government. And the Romans would come in and to the Jewish families would kill people, would do terrible things to families, and would oppress the entire culture. So everybody hated them. And Matthew, even though he was Jewish, raised money for them. But here's the unique thing about Matthew. While he's sitting at his tax collector's booth one day, Jesus comes to him and says, You come follow me. And what happens in Matthew is he understands what it is to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. He learns his grace, his mercy, the power of his forgiveness, what it is to be loved, even though he's done all these stupid things, what it is to know the grace and love and mercy of God. And so he's been redeemed. He's a redeemed tax collector. 
And he writes this book for two reasons and really to two audiences. First and foremost, he wants people that, primarily his people, the Jewish people that have yet to trust Jesus Christ as their Savior to come to know that redemption, to come to know that forgiveness, to come to know that love, that grace. And that's what happens for those of us when we come to grips with who Jesus Christ really is. It's what some of you need to know today. And he writes it also secondarily to also a Jewish audience. We know that Matthew writes to a Jewish audience because he doesn't explain a lot of the customs like some of the other authors of the scripture do. He's writing to a Jewish audience about now what? Because we just murdered our Messiah. And so if you're a Jewish follower of Christ, you're asking yourself questions like, is God done with us? Scary questions. Now what are we supposed to do as his followers now that he's been crucified by our very people? And so Matthew writes to answer some of those questions as well. And he starts off his gospel in the first 17 verses talking about how Jesus came to the line of David. That's the human descent that he has. And then in verse 18, he talks about the virgin birth, his divine line. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Verse 20. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, tying to the first 17 verses of Matthew, the line of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. (laughs) That's real comforting, isn't it? She will give birth to a son, and you're to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. This name has meaning. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So here we read the very beginnings of the Christmas story, and you've got three characters in Matthew's account. Obviously Jesus, the one who's being born. But then engaged in this text, and what actually happens here is that there's this young man named Joseph. He's probably between 17 and 19 years old, and an angel of the Lord comes and speaks to him. And did you notice the very first thing that the angel of the Lord says to him? After he says, Joseph, son of David, he addresses him. He gives him a command. And the command is, do not be afraid. Now, why is it, do you think, that the angel of the Lord says this to Joseph? Go ahead. We can interact here. I'm cool with interaction. So why is it that you think the angel of the Lord says to Joseph, don't be afraid? Because he's scared to death. All right, bingo. Extra points in the back. We got it. This dude is afraid. He's scared. So the angel says to him, don't be afraid. Why does the angel tell him not to be afraid? Why is fear such a bad thing here? Well, see, we have the benefit of being able to read the whole story. There are two verses I haven't read to you yet. We'll get to them a little bit later, verses 24 and 25. And you see that God ultimately has a plan here. He's obviously doing a work in, very literally, in Mary, but he's doing a work in Joseph, and he wants to do a work through Joseph. And the work that he wants to do through Joseph is he wants to use him as a piece, as part of presenting Jesus Christ to the world. But the very thing that would stop him from doing that is his fear. And so the angel of the Lord says, don't be afraid because God has a plan. And it might be different than your plan, Joseph. It might be so crazy you can barely grasp this plan, Joseph. But God has a plan for you and fear is the very thing that could stop us from experiencing or following God's plan. See, fear is the very thing that can freeze us, paralyze us, stop us from experiencing God's plan for our lives. And if you think about fear in general, 
It has a freezing effect, a stopping, a, a paralyzing effect in our lives. And sometimes that's good. There's a healthy fear that we can all have. Like when you come to the road and you're about to cross the road, you stop and you look both ways. And why is it that you do that? Because you're afraid of what could happen if you don't do that. Because you know what could happen. There's a healthy fear there. When you go to cook something, you know you grab a mitt to put on your hand so you don't grab something that's scalding, burning hot. Because you have a healthy fear of the pain that could take place there. That's a good thing. It stops you. And we've talked about before a fear of the Lord. You read the Psalms and the Proverbs, and you see that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And some people talk about, you shouldn't be afraid of God. You know, he loves you. And all. No, there's a healthy fear of God. We should be afraid of him. He's different than us. He's holy. That's different enough. He's righteous. He's just. He's wrathful. He's angry at sin. That's what that means. He's transcendent. He's from another place. And when we realize who we are and who he is, there's a healthy fear there that stops us from sinning. That's a good fear. However, there's another kind of fear. And that kind of fear can actually stop us from fulfilling God's plan for us, fulfilling the plan that he has for us. And that fear can be fear of things like losing control because you're ultimately letting him be in control, a fear of stepping out by faith, a fear of the unknown, a fear of, and you fill in the blank with probably some of your greatest fears, They can be the very thing that stop us from experiencing God's plan for our lives. And in this situation, for Joseph, it was his fear that could have been the very thing that stopped him from experiencing God's plan for him. And what an amazing plan God had for him. It was something totally different than he could have ever imagined. And Matthew sets it up for us in verses 18 and 19. You see the stage of life that Joseph is in. It says that he's pledged to be married to this young woman named Mary. The NIV says pledged to be married. If you read some older translations, it might say something like he was betrothed. And then you see later that they haven't actually come together in this marriage. And so it can be kind of confusing to us. We don't understand unless you're real familiar with the Christmas story. You probably don't understand the word betrothed. You you probably, you know, if you are engaged or you've been engaged or you will be engaged someday, some young man probably didn't come up and say, my dearest flower, (laughs) whilst thou betroth me. Some have not heard that language before. It's not normal language for us. It's not part of our culture. The easiest way I can explain betrothal to you is this. It's like engagement, only way more serious. See, we live in a culture where marriages were arranged, and sometimes that's scary to us because we've heard of, you know, bad stories in our time of arranged marriages, but let me tell you how it worked. What would happen is, and you see it sometimes in the Old Testament as well, it's not that Joseph didn't get to pick his wife, but then he'd have his parents come and talk to, and there'd be some gifts exchanged, and there's a certain ceremony that'd take place, talk to Mary's parents about a bridal agreement, but then Mary had say in whether or not this happened or not. Mary got to say yes or no. If she says no, there's no betrothal. She says yes, though, Now there's a covenant, now there's a contract, now they're betrothed with one another. And it's like, it's almost like being married, except you can't consummate the marriage. You can't have sexual union with one another, and you spend one year apart from one another, proving your purity, a time of preparation for one another. During that time, that means different things for each one of them. And for Joseph, what it means is planning to lead his family. It means planning and having a vision for what's going to happen in the future. And so he starts to prepare. He starts to prepare a place for them to live. And maybe that's an addition onto his parents' house. Maybe that he builds his own place. He starts to plan for when they're going to have their own kids. He starts to dream about the wedding day. The wedding day is a significant day in this culture. Like us, they wear special clothes that day. And, and what would happen is the groom, Joseph, he'd get up that day and he'd take his groom party and he'd take the bridal party over to, to Mary's house and he'd bring her back to this place where there's this huge ceremony. 
her dad's there. Her dad signs a contract for them between them and the parents pray over them, bless them and friends say nice things about them and pray over them and bless them. And then they go into the special chamber, a marital place where they come together. They'll spend some time in prayer together and then they consummate the marriage. And then they come out and there's various ceremonies and, and things will last for a week, sometimes longer than a week where they have a meal and there's dancing and they're partying together for over a week. And so this takes a lot of preparation. If you ever planned a wedding, you know that just that day would take a lot of preparation. All the food, all the drink, all the entertainment, all the people that would come, the invitation, all the stuff that's going to go into this, the special clothes, and just that day. But Joseph, he's not only dreaming about that day, he's dreaming about what's going to happen after that day. See, he loves Mary. They actually know each other. It's not just a contract that their parents put together. But they're in this waiting period, this time where he just plans what it's going to be like when he's the husband and he marries this young lady. She's probably between 12, 14 years old. He's probably about 18, 19 years old. And he's planning for their family together, dreaming about their kids, dreaming about their future. And then he finds out she's pregnant. And it changes everything. Can you imagine for a moment what it would be like to be Joseph in this? Where you've got these plans, you've got these dreams about this huge day about this wedding ceremony that's going to take place and your friends that are going to be there and how dad's going to pray over you and bless you and how her dad's going to pray over you and bless you and how you're going to come together and the kids you'll have and the home that you'll have. And you've got all these dreams and you find out this one piece of news. And we don't know how Joseph found out. Maybe Mary told him. In some situations, they wouldn't be allowed to talk for that one year. Maybe she was able to talk to him. Maybe she was able to say, Joseph, I'm pregnant. Because at this point, she's about four months pregnant. She just spent about three months with her relative Elizabeth. Now she's back. And she says, Joseph, I'm pregnant, but I didn't do anything wrong. (laughs) Yeah. Right. What do you think if you're Joseph? Maybe even worse, a friend of hers told him or a friend of his told him. Or maybe he just noticed. At that one moment, everything changes. Not that you've had that exact experience, but have you ever had the experience where One moment changes everything. Maybe in a marriage, maybe with a child, maybe a doctor comes in and gives you a diagnosis, maybe it's a phone call, maybe it's a tragedy. But one moment can change everything, can it? Change every expectation, change every dream. Can you imagine what Joseph felt like? This week I was in Dallas with a few of our pastors and a couple of the lay leaders of our church and we're dreaming about and just learn about things that we could do as a church, trying to reach this community for Jesus. And while we were there, I ended up finding out about some friends of ours. We lived in Dallas for a while. We got some friends there. And uh, their daughter suffered a tragedy. She's a, a beautiful young girl, 23 years old. She's a model and a writer, and she actually had just started her own magazine. And uh, she was with some friends, a girlfriend of hers, and a family friend was flying a plane, just a single propeller plane, and flying around Dallas, Texas, and looking at all the lights, the Christmas lights that were out. So just a fun time, one of the celebrations that they were going to do. And they landed the plane, And uh, she got off the the plane, and somehow, through various circumstances, she ended up walking into the propeller of this plane. She's a model and a writer. Her hand was cut off, and her skull was fractured by the propeller. I saw one interview of the paramedics that showed up at the scene, and these are veteran paramedics. And the one paramedic says, one of those things, when you see it, it just takes your breath away. And he talked about all the blood that was there and, and how it was, and he said that he just started to pray for her. So he didn't think she had any chance of surviving. And by God's grace, she survived. She's recovering slowly now. She's a writer. She loses her hand. She's a model. Her, her skull is crushed. And one moment, 
all the expectations change. And all the dreams change. And everything's different now. And not that you've experienced that tragedy, but have you ever had that where there's a moment and it changes your plans and it changes your dreams and it changes your expectations and that's where Joseph's at. See, Joseph, he's a righteous man. And what that means in Jewish culture is this. It means that, that he truly fears God, that he truly has a relationship with God. He's not just a religious person who goes to church and listens to the lessons and kind of you know, believes in God. No, he's a, he's a righteous man. He truly believes. He's a genuine believer. And he tries to keep the law. And now he's got this dilemma. He knows he didn't do it, and she's pregnant. So now what does he do? Now, he's got some options. One, according to the law, the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 22, is he could have her stoned to death because it appears to him that she's committed adultery. Now, he just doesn't know all the ways you know, that this, you know, this snuck off with somebody over when she was visiting Elizabeth's relative, or maybe it happened here in town. Who knows whose it was, what's going on? But he knows he didn't do it. So the only assumption you can come to is that she must have been with some other guy. So he can have her stoned publicly. Or because he is not only a righteous man and wants to do what's right, because he actually cares about Mary and doesn't want to expose her to public disgrace, he can try to do it privately where only two or three witnesses are there and they sign some paperwork and there's a divorce. Because the only way to end a betrothal is through death or through divorce. And, And so he's got a plan in his mind. And it says in the text, he starts to consider this plan. The, the Greek tense for that he's considering this makes it clear to us. This is an idea that just came into his mind. He's just thought of this. But it seems like a good plan. It, it seems like the best way where he can maintain his righteousness and not marry some woman that's been out running around with other guys and somebody else's child, but where he can also care for her and have compassion on her. And There's kindness that he shows towards her. It's not a, you hurt me, now I'm going to hurt you. You see his spirit here. You see what kind of man Joseph was. But then this angel of the Lord comes to him and says, Son of David. He's the only human being addressed by that title. In fact, in the Gospel of Matthew, there's only one other person. It's Jesus that's called Son of David. There's significance in that. Son of David, don't be afraid. Because if he's afraid, he misses out on God's plan. If he allows fear to stop him, if he allows fear to paralyze him, if fear is the thing that stops him from taking this next step that the angel will tell him, then he misses out on what God has for him. And you think about it, as you look throughout the scriptures, what you see is that whenever God calls people to a step of faith, it's scary. Think about Peter standing at the edge of that boat, and there's a storm going on all around him, and Jesus is saying, come. No one's ever done this before. You don't think that was terrifying for Peter? Think about Abraham. He's living in this land. Life's not perfect. It's a very idolatrous place, and they're not able to have kids. They've been wanting to have kids their whole life. But then God tells them, you pick up the tent pegs, you pick up everything you got, and you go somewhere, and I'm not even going to tell you where it is right now. You leave without knowing where you're going. Think about in his life years later, when he finally has a child, and so you can imagine, the only child, you know how spoiled they would be, but then they haven't been able to have kids, and they have this kid, and, and then God says, you sacrifice your child to me. I don't think that's scary. But what if they don't? Peter, he never knows what it is to step out on water. Abraham, he's the father of our faith. What happens to him if he doesn't step out by faith? What about Moses? We've talked about Moses when we were doing the Ten Commandments. If, what if he doesn't obey at that burning bush? He's basically wasting his life taking care of some sheep. And God speaks to him and says, I want you to lead two million people out of bondage. 
What does he miss out on if he doesn't step out by faith, if he allows fear to be the thing that paralyzes him? And what about you? Think of your life and, and times that you've done things that have made an incredible difference in your life and the lives of other people. When you step out by faith, isn't it scary every time? When Riley comes up here, he shares with us about how he's going to this place with 300,000 people that don't know Jesus and he wants to share Jesus with them. And he knows he's going to be in isolation and he knows they might even be in danger and there's going to be multiple situations that are going to take place that he's not prepared for because how could you be? He's, there's fear that, that comes there. I want your story. If you trusted Jesus as your Savior, was that a scary decision? It was for me. And as I look back on it, I can see why. It's because I was one of those people that actually believed I could control my life. It's a myth that you can control your life, but I bought the lie. I believed that lie. And when somebody shared the gospel with me that I could have a relationship with Jesus, my sins could be forgiven, I was excited about that. But then they told me, if you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, then he's in control of your life. Then he calls the shots. And I didn't want somebody else in control of my life. Think about what I would have missed out on had I not trusted Jesus Christ as my Savior. Think about what I would have missed out on had I not answered the call when he called me to go into ministry. Because I thought, well, I'm not good enough, and I don't have the ability to do that, and I've done a lot of stupid stuff in the past, and so you can't use me. And if I'd have believed that stuff, what I would have missed out on? Think about asking my wife to marry me. Think about if you're too afraid of commitment to ask that question, or afraid that she might say no. And so in that moment, there's all kinds of nerves. I'm telling you, I was scared. But what a huge blessing. I remember when I sat down with her too, and we've been married for about five years, I said, I'm ready to have kids. <laughs> That's a stupid statement, by the way. <laughs> if I'd have known then what I know now, I'd have never said that statement because you were never ready to have kids, okay? I'm not ready for my one daughter to blow her nose on the other daughter's comforter, okay? They're not ready for that or the refereeing that goes on with all that or any of that stuff. I want to have kids would have been a good statement, but it's scary still to have kids and that commitment and what's going to mean and little people that you're responsible for, but what a blessing they've been. What if we were too afraid to take that step? I talked to the first service about preaching. Sometimes people say to me, now I actually have people come up to me after church and they act like preaching is easy. Like you just get up there and just start talking. It's just easy for you because I like to talk and it's true. I like to talk, but it's so scary. Every week it's scary for me. And it's not just the nerves of public speaking. It's that I'm supposed to say to you what God once said to you. That's a huge burden. That's scary. But you know what happens? As I see God show up in those moments. When I'm dependent upon him, he shows up. When I step out by faith, last week we saw people place their faith in Jesus Christ. What an amazing thing to be a part of. It's in the middle of stepping out by faith, in that fear that God has this tendency to show up and demonstrate himself, to demonstrate his presence, to demonstrate his glory. And so are you too afraid to step out by faith? And this week I was reading in Daniel chapter 3. It's a story of these guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, very hard name guys. And they've got this king that's got a really hard name too. His name's Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is an egomaniac. When you think about the most egomaniac person you can think of, Nebuchadnezzar is way worse than him. Nebuchadnezzar makes this huge statue. It's 90 feet tall. And he tells all the people that are in his kingdom, you've got to bow down and worship this statue. Now, here's the thing for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're Jewish. If you're with us for the last series, we did the Ten Commandments. They didn't need to pray about God's will for their life. It's real clear in Scripture. Don't have any other gods before you. Don't bow down to any idols. Now, you can think about, well, if you're in that situation and you're them and they've got influence, maybe they could, like, God, it's ultimately for your benefit if I bow down here. So, no, it's clear. The scripture speaks very clearly. You don't do this. It's never wrong to do what's right. And so they know they can't bow down to the statue. Well, Nebuchadnezzar finds out there's these three dudes that aren't bowing down. And somehow he's gracious. He's going to give them a second chance. It doesn't end up happening. But he calls them in. 
And he says, when we play the music, you're going to bow down. And I said, no, 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 we're not doing that, king. Look what they're saying. Daniel chapter 3. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, which that's what he said, anybody who doesn't bow down before the statue, we're going to throw them into a blazing furnace. And that's how Babylonians would oftentimes execute people is they'd burn them alive. It says, even if we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. And he will rescue us from you and your hand, O king. But even if he does not, because they weren't guaranteed that he would, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you set up. And so what happens is King Nebuchadnezzar goes, all right, at least you guys believe in something. He lets them go. No, maybe you haven't read the book of Daniel. That's not what happens. What ends up happening is Nebuchadnezzar gets real ticked off. And he says, crank up the furnace seven times hotter than it's ever been cranked up before. And they crank up the furnace heat. And then he grabs his big burly guys. He says, you take those guys, throw them in the furnace. Takes the three guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, throws them in the furnace. And then moments later, this pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar, looks into the furnace and he can see there's four people in there. And they're walking around. They're not tied up anymore. And then from the lips of a pagan king, he says this. One of them looks like a son of the gods. It was the son of God. And he showed up in the midst. You don't think it was scary standing up to the king, doing what's right, no matter what the circumstances are? You don't think that was a step of faith for them? And God shows up with his presence in a unique way in that situation. Because God showed, when we step out by faith, God has this tendency to show up. And he's omnipresent. He's everywhere all the time. But he shows up in that step of faith in a unique way because it's God's presence that actually frees us to follow his plan. See, fear stops us from following his plan, but his presence is what actually frees us to follow his plan. That's our second point. It's the very reason that Joseph is given to not be afraid in this text. You see, God's presence, it frees us to follow his plan. See, Joseph isn't just told in this passage of scripture, hey, Joseph, don't be, stop that fear stuff. Like, don't be afraid anymore. Buck up, you know, pull your bootstraps up. Have some courage, man. Oh, the angel of the Lord says this. After he considered his plan, then God starts to reveal to him God's plan. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. In other words, she has not been with another man. She's not guilty of adultery. She'll give birth to a son, you're to give him the name Jesus. It's Hebrew Joshua. It means God is salvation, but it's not just a name. It's part of the purpose of his life because he will save his people from their sins. That's the purpose of his life. It's to come and redeem us, rescue us, save us from our sins. And then the angel goes on, starts to share from scripture. All this took place to fulfill what the prophet had said long ago. Isaiah, the prophet, is who's being referred to here. It's from Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, if you want to look at it on your own, where Isaiah, the prophet, hundreds of years ago said, And the virgin will be with child, and they'll call him Emmanuel. And you read the full context of what's said there, and you go all the way to chapter 9. That's the full context from chapter 7 through chapter 9. And chapter 9 and verse 6 says that passage you'll hear multiple times probably this Christmas. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting Father, Mighty God. He's an amazing God, the Prince of Peace comes and brings us peace because he's Emmanuel. He's God with us. That's what the angel tells him. The virgin will be with child and give birth to a son and they'll call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. 
And so what Joseph has promised is this, that God will be with you in this. In fact, God's coming to you and he's going to give you his presence in a unique way so you can fulfill his plan. And what we see when you read the next verses, verses 24 and 25, is that Joseph obeyed. And he takes Mary home to be his wife. And he gives the, the baby and gives the baby the name Jesus. He does exactly what he's told to do. And you'd almost expect it to then read, and they lived happily ever after. <laughs> it doesn't read that way, does it? See, this isn't a fairy tale. This is real life. God's plan is real. And it's not just you obey me and everything gets real easy. But you obey me and I show up. You obey me and I do a work that only I can do in you and through you. And you see, throughout the scriptures, when God shows up, it's significant. God shows up with Moses and he tells them what he's going to do and then he shows up at Mount Sinai and he tells these people how to live in freedom. Those are significant moments throughout the history of Israel. You see, God shows up with Abraham. He shows up with Abraham on top of Mount Moriah. He doesn't have to sacrifice his son, but he's willing. And he says, Abraham, Abraham. You don't think that was significant for him? You see, God shows up throughout the scriptures. He shows up when Jonah goes running from him and he shows up and he stop, he's disciplining because he disciplines those he loves and he speaks to us and he still speaks to us, we saw last week in Hebrews chapter 12. God is currently, present tense, speaking to us through his son Jesus, through his word, through the blood of his son Jesus Christ. And he shows up in our lives, but never throughout human history has been more significant of a time that he shows up throughout human history than this first Christmas story where we see the virgin birth, which is kind of a, a nice story. It's kind of an interesting story, and we kind of check it off. Like, we believe in the virgin birth, so we're, like, really Christians and all that kind of thing. Do you realize how significant this is for our daily lives? The fact that he's fully God and fully human. See, if he's not fully God, he can't die for our sins because he's human. He might be a good moral teacher. He might be a nice leader. He might be a good example to us. But we're still on our way to hell because he can't die for our sins. But if he's just fully God, he's got all this power and he can pay for our sins and he can remove that barrier. But how can he sympathize with our sufferings and our temptations and know what it's like to be hungry and to be tired and to get sick? But he's fully God and he's fully human. And those things come together at the virgin birth and then he becomes with us through the womb of a 13-year-old girl. The glory of God enters this earth unlike it's ever entered before. And John chapter 1 tells us he dwells among us. He tabernacles with us. And see, the tabernacle in the Old Testament was a sign of his presence. And now his presence is here in the flesh. And he lives this life and everybody he comes into contact with, whether they place their faith in him or not, are changed because they see the presence of God, even the religious leaders. And they're changed. They kill him because they don't want their lives transformed. But you see people like the woman at the well in John chapter 4. What a sad life, living in regret and in guilt. And then he tells her everything about her past. And she's forever changed on a new mission. She's different. She came into contact with Emmanuel, God with us. You see, Lazarus, he dies, he's dead. He knows the glory of heaven and Jesus has to bring him back, which breaks his heart. But he's changed, never the same. You see, blind man, he says, the blind man in John chapter 9, he, he ends up, he was born blind, but then he gets to see and he says, I was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. His life is transformed because he came into contact with Jesus. One of, if not the most powerful testimony of someone's life being changed in the Gospels, is in Mark chapter 15. There's a guy, he's a centurion. And before you even read the verse, a centurion is a Roman soldier who's probably murdered himself hundreds if not thousands of people. He's perhaps seen hundreds of thousands of people die. He's definitely seen hundreds if not thousands of crucifixions. And this is what he says when he sees Jesus die on the cross. When the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. 
He was different. God's presence, Emmanuel, God with us, the Son of God, fully God, fully human, here in this place. Significant. Probably the most significant time up until this point in human history that God's shown up and shown off his presence in our midst. This is his first Christmas story. And so I ask you this question. How do you think that God wants to show up this Christmas in your life? Like, don't think that God's okay with us just kind of going through the motions of Christmas and showing up at church, maybe doing a, you know, a little service project here or there, giving some gifts, telling some stories, rah, rah, make some New Year's resolutions and move on, right? I mean, how do you think God wants to actually show up in your life this Christmas? Make his presence known in your life. What sin does he want to deal with? What fears does he want you to overcome? What steps of faith does he want you to take? See, God wants to show up and do a work in your life. But not only does he want to show up and do a work in your life, he wants to do a work through your life. Like, don't be deceived into thinking that God just came to this earth to fix your circumstances, to forgive your sins, and then he's done. It's not all about you. See, he's got a plan to do a work not only in you, he wants to do a work through you. And you see that through the Gospel of Matthew. In fact, I think it's awesome that Matthew actually starts in chapter 1 promising God's presence. Do you know how he ends the book of Matthew? It's promising God's presence. But right at the end, he also tells us his plan. You want to know what God's plan is for you? I'll tell you exactly. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, here's his plan for you. I know this beyond a shadow of a doubt, that you would trust Jesus Christ as your Savior today. The Scripture tells us that. He's not willing that anyone would go without a relationship with him. And he wants a relationship with you. But if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior... I also know God's plan for you. How it fleshes itself out will be different for each one of us, but I know his plan is this. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. Jesus, right before he leaves, after he's been crucified, he rises from the dead and he speaks to his disciples. It says, Jesus then came to them and said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And with all that authority, all the authority of heaven, all the authority of earth, let me tell you something. Therefore, go and make disciples. It's not just about you. It's about what he wants to do through you of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. They place their faith in Jesus. They get baptized with the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Then here's what you do. You teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. Every work that he's taught you, everything he's done in your life, he wants you to pass that on to someone else. Each one of us are at a different place. Everything he's taught us. And that comes with a promise. Surely I'm with you always. See, when you live according to his plan, he's present all the time, everywhere. When you live according to his plan, there's a special presence that you experience. I'm with you always as you walk by faith. I'll show up in the midst of that fear. And so the question is, for us, how? It's not what. His plan is clear. It's like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They didn't have to ask any questions. Should we bow down to the idol? Maybe in this situation? No, no, it's real clear. And God's plan for our lives is clear. Trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, then he puts you on a mission. The mission's not about you. The mission's about reaching this world for his glory. It's ultimately for your good and his glory because it's when you're doing that that you find the fulfillment because you're doing what you're created to do. But here's his plan. Now, how do we do this? I can't tell every person exactly how to do it, but I know that it's happening amongst people's lives. Last week after one of the services, I was talking to a young man that goes to our church. He's nine years old. His name's Cooper. And Cooper's become one of my little buddies here at the church. And uh, I asked him, what, you know, what do you ask a nine-year-old at that time? I asked, what do you want for Christmas this year? And he said, I don't want anything for Christmas this year. It's like, wow. You know, most kids, they want like transformers and you know, robots of some sort and whatever video game systems are out there, whatever. And he said, I don't want anything. I asked my mom to take the money she was going to spend on me for Christmas and give it to this orphanage in Haiti. I was like, wow, he gets it. He's only nine years old. 
But if you know Coover's story, he's actually, God's gotten a hold of his heart a couple years ago when that, that earthquake took place in Haiti. Some of you may remember that terrible earthquake took place, all the people displaced and just a mess. Um, his grandfather's actually working on an orphanage there. And I believe the orphanage um, will house about 60 different kids. They've got 32 in there right now because they don't have the money to have all, there's definitely enough kids. There's not enough money there. But um, he ended up deciding that he was going to give some money to help build this orphanage. And he was, doing, he was in a lesson over in Bridge Kids, and if you teach in Bridge Kids, I'm going to tell you something, the lessons make a difference. And sometimes you might think you're just trying to get them to be quiet, but they, they make a difference. And his teachers that day were teaching about giving. And so, you know, you're teaching a seven-year-old kid about giving. I mean, how many quarters do they have in their piggy bank, right? But he decided that what he was going to do is he was going to give $50 to this orphanage. And by the end of the day, he had realized that he actually had, to his name, with his piggy bank and savings account, all that stuff, he had $175. He was going to give 150 of it to this orphanage. And this gives you an idea of his personality, too. Then he called his grandparents up and asked his grandparents to match that gift. <laughs> We're going to start having him raise money for the church. Anyway, uh, <laughs> he, he, he had his grandparents match that. And then over the course of the next several days, he actually raised $4,000 for this orphanage to try and make an impact in these kids' lives because he knows there's kids there. They don't even, not only do they not have the material stuff that he has, and I'm talking like socks, underwear, shoes, but they don't have parents. And he's been given so much, and he realizes it's not just about me. I don't make a difference in somebody else's life. How's God's presence going to show up through your life and somebody else's life? And it wasn't just a one-time thing because now here we are, we're two years later and he's still got a burden for these kids in Haiti. So it wasn't just because it was all over the news. It was that that opened his eyes to what's going on around the world and there are a bunch of people that don't have what we have. And I'm not just talking about material stuff. They don't have Jesus. And so he wants to share that and that's an avenue. That's an opportunity to do just that. He gets it. So what about us? What do we do? How do we do this this Christmas? I can give you a bunch of different ideas. I was reading this week about several churches, started with four, um, a few years ago that decided they were going to do what they call the Advent Conspiracy. Advent Conspiracy, you can look it up online, you'll find a bunch of videos about it and different things. But the premise of it is that every year, American Christians, Americans, I'm sorry, American people as a whole, spend four, $450 billion buying gifts for one another. And they ended up realizing one of the biggest needs in our world is clean water. In fact, more people die from not having clean water than anything else, more than car accidents, cancer, heart, at- heart attacks, all that stuff. And so the problem could be solved for $10 billion. Everybody in the world could have clean drinking water. We spend $450 billion every year on Christmas presents. So these four churches decided they were going to do challenge their church not to not buy any gifts, just buy less, just buy less gifts than you would naturally buy, but instead of then just like having less debt or not having to deal with the traffic or whatever the benefits of buying less gifts would be, instead give that money away. And so they decided they would give that money away. The first year they raised $500,000. Now there's churches all over the world that have come together for this Advent conspiracy, this time of year to conspire, to come together with a plan to try and show God's glory off to other people because of what he's done in our lives and what he can do through our lives and demonstrate his presence in other people's lives. International Justice Ministries has partnered with them, and they're doing part of it as well. And they say that there's more, more slaves in the world today than ever before, sex slaves and labor slaves. And they said for $4.5 billion, that's 1% of what we'll spend on Christmas presents, a million people could be freed from slavery. The possibilities are almost endless in how we could impact people's lives. If we realize that God doesn't just want to show up in our lives, he wants to show up through our lives, impact other people. So what will you do? It might be as simple as just spending less. I'm not even saying not to buy any presents. Just spend less and use that money for something. We're taking our Christmas Eve offering, or we're giving 100% of our Christmas Eve offering away. So if you're there on Christmas Eve, the money you give is going to go to church planning, it's going to go to caring for orphans, and it's going to go to community outreach over the next year. So maybe that's the simple step that you take. 
Or maybe God wants to do something else. Maybe he wants you to adopt. Maybe he wants you to be serious about reaching your neighbors for Jesus. Maybe he wants you to quit your job, do something else. Maybe he wants you to go to a Muslim country where there's 300,000 people that don't know Jesus and you're one of five. I don't know what God wants to do in your life, but I believe that he speaks to us and he can speak to your heart. He can speak to us now. Just as he said in Hebrews chapter 12, he is currently present tense speaking to us. What does he want to do in your life and through your life this Christmas? Don't let fear stop you. Because fear can be the very thing that stops you from experiencing God's plan for your life. But when you step out by faith, God shows up in a unique way. And he did that through Joseph. Because Joseph was obedient, he was able to be a part of demonstrating Jesus Christ, presenting Jesus Christ to the whole world because he overcame that fear. What about you? Let's pray. Father, we come before your throne because we know that your throne is a throne of grace. So we come boldly, and I come boldly before you, and I ask that every person in here would walk by faith this Christmas. I ask that each one of us would take whatever step of faith you desire for us to take. And I pray you'd begin even right now. Will you please speak to our hearts? And while you're still in the spirit of prayer, with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, some of you here, or maybe you're watching online or you're in Theater 14, well, God's speaking to your heart as you need to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. You've yet to place your faith in him. Maybe you're a religious person, maybe you're a good person, maybe you, you feed people at the rescue missions, maybe you do all that kind of stuff, but you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus. What you need to do is you need to start one today. And the way you do that is you acknowledge something that both you and he know is true, that you have sin. We all have sin. But that sin is the very thing that's a barrier between you and him. And so you acknowledge that sin before him and that it's stopping you from a relationship with God. And you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and he's able to pay for your sins. And you ask him to be your savior. That's why he came to this earth. He came to save you from your sins. And you receive the gift. He's offering you a gift and that gift is eternal life. It's a relationship with him. You receive that gift today. And if you want to receive that gift, you can pray a prayer like this. Father, I admit my sin before you. I believe your son Jesus Christ died for my sins. I want to place my faith in your son Jesus. I want to receive the gift of eternal life that you offer through your resurrection. You defeated death, you give life. I want that life. I want that forgiveness. I want a new life. And if you just prayed prayed that prayer and genuinely believe it in your heart, you've received Jesus Christ as your Savior. And I would just ask you before you leave today, would you acknowledge that on your connection card? Whether you filled one out as a guest or not, if you just fill it out, you can drop into the box. You can take it to the first-time guest kiosk. We'd love to follow up with you and pray for you and help you in that new relationship with Jesus. And Father, I pray for those that already know you. I pray that we would be able to cast our fears upon you, that we'd cast all of our doubts upon you, that we'd cast our anxieties upon you, that you would fill us with your spirit and that you would show up in our lives this Christmas and that you would demonstrate yourself through our lives as we walk by faith. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Pray. Amen. Pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.